All right, now I know it's snowing, and I have flip-flops on. Please pay special attention that I painted my toes for you. I, I get woozy if I speak with shoes on for some reason. So flip-flops is the way I solve that problem, but if I start to go, someone quick come up and... Okay, well, I'm so thankful that you braved the weather this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think it's safe to say that nowhere in the New Testament do we find a writer who says so much with so few words. We have had the benefit of comprehensive pastoral care from James in just two and a half chapters, and up to now he has been affectionate in his instructions. He says, my brothers, or my dear brothers. He said that eight times so far. He will say that five times in chapter five, but in our portion today, there are no my brothers. There's one curt brothers in chapter four, and that's because James has hard things to say, and his readers are going to feel the heat of his confrontation. Well, James asks his readers, who is wise and understanding among you? And that phrase, wise and understanding, is a loaded phrase for them. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 4.6. Moses said, keep these statutes and do them. For that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, surely, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So wisdom and understanding are part of their Jewish identity. And James says then, who is wise and understanding among you, knowing that they would say, why, us, of course, we have the law. But then he qualifies. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Just like our works are the evidence of a living faith, our good conduct is the evidence of true wisdom. And that wisdom is characterized by meekness. Meekness means gentle of spirit. Commentator Ralph Martin said, it's a word with a caress in it. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek, or gentle, and humble in heart. James will keep returning to the necessity of gentleness and humility throughout this part of his letter because the opposite quality, arrogance, is the root cause of the issues that he's addressing. At the end of chapter 4, we heard him challenge them saying, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Well, James has had reliable reports of serious strife among the churches. So he says to them, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, bitter jealousy in Greek is harsh zeal. And in this context is the zeal for your own selfish interest that has a sting. 
And the words um, selfish ambition in the Greek is electioneering. Aristotle defined electioneering as the self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Sound familiar? We know of politicians who recently lied about their credentials in order to get elected into Congress. Those are the tactics that the world uses to get what it wants. But James says that kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. These are the three qualities that are exactly parallel to the ones that Paul names in Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They're the influences that determine the world's values. They shaped our values before we met Christ. But James is writing to Christ followers who are meant to be recognized by their love for each other and their unity. Linda reminded us last week that Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in John 17, Jesus said to the Father, the glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Our love and our unity are meant to reveal the glory of Christ. If we lapse back into the values of the world, we hide that glory. Now, some of us have had experiences in church, even, when self-interest and electioneering have hidden Christ's glory. When Doug and I were new believers, we went to a church that had a very cherished communion tradition each week that um, we had one cup of red wine that we all took a sip from and we had one loaf of bread that we all shared. Well, there was a man in our congregation whose father's drunkenness had so traumatized him that he could not associate anything holy with the taste of alcohol. So each week he would reverently hold the cup but he'd pass it without taking a sip. And some, it seemed to some of us that, you know, if we had grape juice, yet we could all participate, so we brought it up to the elders. Oh, and they said, oh, no, 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 it had to be wine. It wasn't grape juice at the Last Supper, and besides, we need it to be wine to kill all the germs since we're all drinking out of the same cup. So... You know, we let it go, especially since the man in question did not want anything to change on his account. But then a recovering alcoholic came into our fellowship. And now passing a cup of alcohol under the nose of a recovering alcoholic who's so vulnerable just seemed appalling to us. So we brought the subject up again. And now this time both sides were zealous for their point of view. The grape juice party electioneered by grousing to anyone who would listen how the shepherds cared more about their tradition than they cared about the sheep. And the wine party campaigned for their view with impassioned speeches about how special it was that we followed the example of the Lord at the, at the Last Supper by having wine and one communal cup. Well, the wine party won. But here's the thing. Both sides were arrogantly proud of their rightness. So much so that we were blind to the damage that was done by our electioneering. A rift was created 
And when future issues came up, we ended up organizing ourselves along those same factions. We hid the glory of Christ by our disunity. Well, James gives us a better way. He gives us the quality of wisdom from above. And some of these qualities are, Jesus, are taken from Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, and some are qualities that he himself demonstrated. But every one of them is grounded in his meekness, his gentleness, and humility. James says that wisdom from above is pure. And we hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure, for they will see God. Arrogance and sin impair our spiritual vision. If we want to seek God and access his wisdom, we need clean hearts and pure motives. James says that wisdom from above is peaceable. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. All of God's efforts through Christ were to reconcile and make peace with mankind. We look like our Heavenly Father's children when reconciliation and peace are our clear goals. Wisdom from above is gentle. That's just the opposite of the harsh zeal that James condemned. And as Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Only the gentle and the humble are trustworthy to handle inheriting the earth. We know what happens when the power hungry and the selfish get control of the world. They misuse it, and they don't care who they hurt to get what they want. Wisdom from above is open to reason. And the Greek term means easy to be entreated or easily compliant. Well, Jesus was easy to entreat. He asked the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And to the man at the pool of Bethesda, do you want to be healed? And Jesus was compliant in that he was flexible. He allowed his plans to be interrupted by the sick, by the bereaved, by the panicking, by the merely curious. Wisdom asks and invites questions. Wisdom seeks to understand and adjusts to the needs at hand. James says wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. And Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. God is full of mercy toward us, and we have no right to withhold it from one another. But not only that, we are all vulnerable to affliction. It's wise to relieve the, the suffering of the afflicted because it's only a matter of time before we ourselves might need help. And James says that wisdom from above is impartial. That means unwavering or morally consistent. Wisdom does not succumb to situational ethics. It's faithful to the truth, even if the truth isn't what anyone wants to hear. And Jesus is, is our example. Whether he was speaking to royalty or to paupers, to the grateful or the ungrateful, to the supportive or to the hostile, no matter the consequences, he spoke unwavering truth. And wisdom is sincere, without hypocrisy or duplicity. And we know how Jesus felt about hypocrisy. He condemned it four times in just the Sermon on the Mount. But think of it. In seven words, James has recalled to our minds literally hundreds of Jesus' words. Well, James concludes his description 
of, sermon, of uh, wisdom from above with this. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The rewards of wisdom from above are righteousness and peace. But James is hearing about all-out war among these Jewish Christians. And he asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And the literal Greek would be, from where wars? From where fights among you? The fact that there are no verbs in that sentence indicates the intensity of James's tone. He is not dealing with just minor tensions here. Squabbles on the playground do not reach the ears of the superintendent of schools unless it has escalated to newsworthy violence. James is dealing with newsworthy strife that has reached his ears in Jerusalem. And his diagnosis of the problem is this, in his next question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word passions is hedone. It's the word we get hedonism from, and it just means pleasures. Their hearts are in turmoil wrestling with their desire for pleasures. And that wrestling is spilling over into their relationships. They want the pleasures of the world. They want, they want influence. They want money, status, luxury. These are the things that have become more important to them than loving one another. James says you desire or you lust and do not have so you murder. Murder? Really, James? Well, there are some scholars that think that the infighting may have led to some dreadful scandal of murder. But I think it's more likely that James is reminding them of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.21, beginning there. He says, you have, heard it. you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that who, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. They murder one another with their anger because their brothers and sisters have what they want. And James says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Arrogance is behind all of this competing and striving. They don't accept with humble gratitude the blessings God has chosen to give them, and they think that their brothers' and sisters' blessings are rightfully theirs. Their arrogance and preoccupation with pleasure is also corrupting their prayers. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. Well, they don't ask because they think they're quite capable of getting what they want by their own contentious efforts, thank you very much. And even if they do ask, James says they don't receive because they're asking for the wrong things for the wrong reason. Commentator David Guzik said, the purpose of prayer is not to persuade a reluctant God to do whatever I want him to do. The purpose of prayer is to align my will with God's will and in partnership with him, ask him to accomplish his will on earth. Well, humility is needed for that kind of prayer. Jesus said in Matthew 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Humility first asks. And then humility trusts that God knows what things are good to give us and what things are good 
to withhold from us. But we also need humility to let go of our plans and submit to God's plans and purposes. The Apostle John said in his first letter in chapter 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request that we have asked of him. It seems that the pursuit of pleasure is wreaking havoc among these Jewish Christians. So is James saying that pleasure is wrong? No, because pleasure is a gift from God. It's his idea. He provides many delightful pleasures to bless us and to comfort us. Food, beauty, color, music, sports, art, nature, romance, laughter. But we can turn any pleasure into a problem. We can turn enjoying food into gluttony. We can enjoy, a, we can turn a, a fun hobby into an unhealthy escapism. We can turn um, enjoying our, our technology into an addiction to our devices. The problem is that we look to our pleasures for our peace, our well-being, our value, and even sometimes our strength things they were never meant to provide, to provide. We are meant to find those things in our relationship with God. And when we desire God's gifts more keenly than we desire him, our pleasures have become our idols, which is exactly what has happened to James's readers. And that's why he says, you adulterous people. That phrase reminds them of their prophets. Jeremiah and Isaiah, where God refers to himself as the husband of Israel, and her idolatry as adultery. While their ancestors betrayed their faithful husband by worshiping pagan gods, James' readers, are their idolatry is their friendship with the world and its pleasures. What are we idolizing? What do we feel the need for more than God himself? You will know what that is if you get angry if it's withheld. I worry that the American church worships at the altar of ease and comfort, just like the rest of America. I mean, how many of our prayers, mine included, are requests for God's gifts instead of for knowing him more deeply. Even if knowing him more deeply would involve hardship and suffering. And you know why I don't pray like that? Because I'm a weenie and I don't like hardship and suffering. But idolatry is a problem that has spanned every human era. But James reminds us that God has always ardently and jealously desired the exclusive devotion of his people. Well, James tells his readers that the provision that God has made to help them out of their spiritual mess is grace. But he gives more grace. The catch is humility is required because God opposes the proud and the proud don't feel a need for grace anyway. And you discussed in your groups that rapid fire of commands that James gives uh, that, that help us cultivate that necessary humility. And these commands are short and they're powerful. They're like New Testament proverbs. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourself. Stop thinking that God is less than he is and that you are more than you really are. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Resist is a military term. It means stand against. Stand up against the enemy's lies. Peter and Paul expand on this thought. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand against him. Firm in your faith. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our enemy may seem strong and scary, but all three apostles tell us we are armed and dangerous to Satan if we will first humble ourselves and then use all the resources that God has given us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's a promise, but how do we do that? Well, first, cleanse your hands. Repent of the sinful things your hands have done. Clear the air between you and God. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. It can't be done. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, these are prescriptive statements. They are remedies for the sin-sick souls that James is writing to. It's like he's saying, wipe that smile off your face. Your sin is no laughing matter. Mourn deeply over your sin. But they're not to remain there. They're not to remain there. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now you discussed in your groups James' command not to judge each other. But we can't help but notice that James had no problem judging the attitudes and the behaviors of his readers and calling them out on it. So is he willing to do something that he and scripture prohibit? No. James is confronting them out of love and legitimate concern and because he has a pastoral responsibility for them. He is dealing with a colossal failure on their part to love one another. They are ruining each other's reputations and not to mention what they're doing to the reputation of the gospel. It's that, uh, it's that judging one another in arrogance and mean-spiritedness that James warns is spiritually dangerous. And Jesus warned about it too. He said in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, if we use a measuring stick of arrogance and mercilessness to judge others, that same measuring stick of arrogance and mercilessness will be used to judge us. But Jesus also said that people tell us a lot about themselves by their actions. In Matthew 7:15 and 16, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruits. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased, fruit, uh, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, there's a broader application of this than just the false prophets. When we see bad fruit in someone's life, there's something wrong. And it would be foolish to ignore it and not take it into account. What we're supposed to do about it is a matter of being led by the Holy Spirit. It may be that we have a responsibility to confront out of love and concern. But here's where the qualities 
of wisdom from above give us a lens through which to see others. Purity, peace-seeking, mercy, gentleness, impartiality, sincerity. It's a lens of reality, but it's also a lens of humility and gentleness. And if that's how we view other people's sins and faults, we will not be arrogant judges and condemn others, but we can be agents, agents of righteousness and redemption and restoration. Well, in all of these difficult issues, it would be hard to overestimate the value of humility. Happily, humility comes with a promise. James reminds us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And Jesus himself said in three different parables, in three different occasions, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So in God's kingdom, the humblest are the richest in spiritual blessings and the most highly favored. But how counter that is to the world? And ah, uh, how much we need that grace because great, uh, hum humility is so unnatural to us. Well, Kent Hughes gave a lovely illustration of how grace and humility work. Think of grace as rain. It falls on the earth and the high places get wet, but the water keeps running down to the lowest places on earth and there it pools. It's from those low places that we get the water to drink and to bathe and to farm and to flourish. When we need a pool of grace, we need to get low. It's the place of greatest receiving. So as we go through Holy Week, let's remember that our Lord made himself low so that he could provide a limitless pool of grace for us. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 to 9, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. <laughs>